0: When there's a disaster, there's usually also an opportunity. So be prepared for that. I have learned, and I hope you have learned, and everyone learns, that when there is a disaster, yes, we all feel sorry for the people, and we want to help in any way we can, but we might also invest. And by the way, if you invest in a place where there's a disaster, you're helping the people. Yeah, you're there to make money. But the people need all the help they can get, including all the investment they can get. So Absolutely. it's not just some greedy capitalist. I mean, you're actually doing good for the people, for the area, for whatever is whatever's happening.
1: We stand today. This is method the business with the shadow. The
2: business method.
1: The business method podcast.
2: The business method podcast, featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs' systems, methods, tools, and tactics
3: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high-performance experts dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. We've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today. The billionaire CEO of Priceline, Jeff Hoffman, the CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, world's top big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, the first black woman to build a billion-dollar company, Janet Howroyd, world's top investment expert, Jim Rogers, and the list goes on and on. All of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and any podcast app you prefer. Also, you guys, have you started listening to our micro high-performance episodes yet? We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just 2 to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode.
2: The Business Method.
3: Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course, some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that wanna be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermozzi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network connect with some of the brightest minds in business today and help one another overcome business challenges faster you can learn more about our community at the remember subscribe to stay updated and now let's hop into today's show
2: the business method podcast featuring chris reynolds
3: All right, listeners, welcome to the Business Method podcast. And today, do we have a treat for you. One of the most iconic investors and entrepreneurs in modern history is joining us on the podcast today. His name is Jim Rogers, and we actually had him on the show a few years ago and are fortunate enough to get him back for another episode. If you don't know who Jim is, I suggest you Google him right now, and you'll start to see why I'm so excited to chat with him again. Jim is one of the most seasoned international investors on the planet, and I'll give you a brief outline to give you an idea of his expertise. Jim was born in Alabama in 1942, and he attended Yale in the mid-60s, then headed to Oxford to get another degree in politics and economics. Next Jim began his Wall Street career, and in 1970 apprenticed with Arnold and Esch Bleikroter, where he met George Soros. In 1973, Jim started together with George Soros, the Quantum Fund, with only $600 in his pocket. of the first truly international hedge funds. Over the next 10 years, their fund went up 4,200% when the S&P 500 only rose less than 50%. In 1980, Jim retired and traveled by motorcycle through China, continuing to manage his own portfolio. Jim served as a guest professor at the Columbia University Graduate School of Business. In 1990, Jim set out to fulfill a lifelong dream, motorcycling 100,000 miles across six continents, an achievement that landed him in the Guinness Book of World Records. In 95, he wrote his first book about that experience and investing. As a private investor, he constantly analyzed the countries through which he traveled in search of investment ideas. He recorded that unique journey in that book. And in 98, Jim founded the Rogers International Commodities Index, predicting that the next commodity bull run had just begun. The (laughs) index measures 35 different commodities from 11 different international exchanges and was up 170% (laughs) over the first decade. In 1999, Jim embarked on a millennium adventure, traveling around the world for three years, passing through 116 countries, and covering more than 152,000 miles, setting yet another Guinness Book of World Records. Time Magazine labeled Jim as the Indiana Jones of investing. He recorded that journey in The Adventure Capitalist, and he wrote another book called Hot Commodities and yet another book called A Bull in China, all successful bestsellers. In 2007, Jim moved his family to Singapore to be closest to the hottest market in the history of the world, saying, in his view, China is going to be the most important country in the 21st century. He's regularly featured in international media outlets, including Time, The Washington Post, New York Times, Barron's, Ford's Fortune. all. Of the above. And he's on the podcast today. Mr. Rogers, welcome to the show, my friend. How
0: are you? Well, I'm fine, Chris. You didn't have to go through all that. I just wanted one quick footnote. Yes, I'm in the Guinness Book of Workers three times, but Chris, it doesn't pay the rent. It doesn't. No. <laughs> you know, my, my mother thought it was great, but it doesn't pay the rent. It doesn't pay anything. So yeah, it sounds, it sounds better than it is. It, it always sounds cooler than it really is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so
3: the so last time we were on the show, it's kind of ironic, Jim, because you mentioned a Chinese phrase that has actually is, is actually correlated with what is happening in the economy today. And you said you shared with us the phrase "wei ji." In Wei G, it means when crisis happens, so does opportunity. Crisis and opportunity are the same thing. That's what you told us. And you said if crisis ever hits China, then to email you and say Wei G because you may be panicking, but to stay calm because there's opportunity on the backside of it. And as we all know, a year and a half ago, COVID hit, apparently coming from China and has affected the entire world. So how has life been for you over the past three years with everything that's going
0: on with COVID and China and investing? Well, you have a good memory, Chris. I just wanted to add, by the way, that the Koreans and the Japanese have the same word. I mean, they pronounce it differently because it's a different language, but it's written exactly the same, the same character. You know, these Asian countries and societies have been around a long, long, long time, so they know. Crisis and opportunity are the same thing. Um, I have done a bit in in the markets, in Asian markets in the the last year or so. Uh, Not huge, but I have. I hope I've taken advantage of some of the things that are going on. Uh, It's not good for the world. As far as my life, I haven't been able to travel. Virtually, I think maybe one or two trips in the last year and a half. So it's affected me in a big way. But as far as investing, I have added a little bit.
3: Um, so I want to talk more about China and COVID here in a bit. And I'm sure some of the, the audience has questions as well. But um, before we dive into the economics, politics, investing and entrepreneurship, I would like the audience to get to know you a bit more Understanding where you come from and the history that you have, because your career is absolutely fascinating for me. I actually started watching you, I would say like 17 years ago when I was in grad school, and I would see you on business news and CNN, talking investing, and and I was always like, I want to know who this guy is. I want to learn more about him. And then in 2009, I started investing in gold and silver, quite often listening to you and your advice. And, but your life is really unique because you're in Singapore now, very successful guy, but you started, started off in 1942 in Alabama and in 1942, Alabama was a very different place.
0: What was it like growing up there for you? Well, just a slight correction. I was actually born in Baltimore in 1942. My father was in the army and he happened to be stationed in Baltimore when I came out. We went to Alabama soon after, but I, Technically, and on my birth certificate, it says Baltimore, which is where my father was stationed in the Second World War. Well, Alabama, in 1942, I lived in a very small town. Uh, my phone number was five. I mean, it was that small. It was that, <laughs> that, that far away from everything. Uh, I didn't know much about the world. I, I, I did have some desire to see the world. I, I look back and I know that, and I wonder where that came from. No, when I I went to college, you mentioned I went to Yale, I knew nothing about the world. I realized when I got to Yale, I knew very little about America, the rest of America in those days. Uh, I learned quickly, it was a shock to go to Yale. I wasn't prepared, I was in over my head, but I had a wonderful time, I had a wonderful time at Oxford. You know, life uh, has
3: been fun. You must uh, have had incredible grades if you went from small town
0: Alabama to get accepted into Yale. Well, I think probably, Chris, it was because my phone number was five. That was it. (laughs) They never had anybody apply to Yale with a phone number five before. So they said, we need some diversification. We need some geographical distribution. We better take this guy. I had good grades, but Chris, there were only 40 people in my high school class. Yeah. you know some of them couldn't read and write so don't don't think i was some <laughs> kind of smart guy or something um so your your investment career started right
3: after yale you went well you went to excuse me after oxford so you went to oxford and then basically went into wall street and started you were apprentice apprenticed, right with arnold and s blickroter well, in 1970 again
0: another slight correction i okay. went into the united states army for a couple of years too okay. after the united states army i went straight to wall street yes
3: okay did you know as a young man you wanted to be get into investment banking
0: and and no no when i was a senior at, at yale i was going to go to law school and business school and medical school i mean i was confused college kid like many other people uh i happened to get a summer job on wall street quite by accident because i liked the guy uh, he gave me a summer job and i fell in love i realized you know my whole life i I had been keen on what was happening in the world, and here was a place that would pay me to follow my passions, and it'd pay me well if I did it right. So I didn't go to law school or business school or medical school. I went to Wall Street as soon as I got out of the Army.
3: So then fast forward into 1970, you apprenticed with Arnold and S. Blykroeder. Uh, which is where you met George Soros. And in 73, you and George Soros uh, started the Quantum Fund, which was one of the first truly international hedge funds. And it's interesting talking to you, Jim, because um, just a few weeks ago, we interviewed a guy named Kyle Samani, who has started one of the first cryptocurrency hedge funds. And they've raised, I think, $150 million for their fund. And it's exciting to hear kind of his story about starting in a new market. And that's essentially what you and George did Back in the day, you said we were going to start a hedge fund in an international market. What made you guys think about that and decide to pursue it?
0: Well, it wasn't so much. we. we, It's just the way we invested. Uh, Both of us had always invested uh, internationally and Mm -hmm. in all markets, bonds, commodities, uh, stocks, currencies, the whole world. It wasn't we sat down and said, oh. Let's start the first international edge one. That's just what we did. That's the way we invested. I remember once, early in my career on Wall Street, talking to some guys about buying the the Danish krona. Well, they all left the room. They (laughs) had no clue what I was talking about. They don't want to bother with me. Who the hell cares about the Danish krona? Uh, Those are the days when you were from Wall Street. You mainly just invested on the New York Stock Exchange. All that's changed, of course. Yeah. But we were always interested in the
3: whole world. So you guys, in, in 10 years, you guys got a gain of 4,200% with that fund, while the S&P 500 only rose less than 50%. What do you think made it so successful?
0: Well, we both loved what we were doing. Uh, we were passionate about what we were doing. And what we're doing. I, I didn't like for the market to close on weekends. I wanted it. I was so much fun. Uh, we used a lot of leverage. Um, it worked. Uh, We could have gone and wiped out one afternoon. We used a lot of leverage uh, in those days. But passion, leverage, and it all came together. International investing, and it all came together. Did you have a a money philosophy when
3: you were in your 20s and 30s, Jim? Um, Because you see a lot of people, they get a lot of wealth when they're younger and not know how to handle it. And, And I'm curious, did you have some mentors that help you through that process or did you... Uh, do like many young people and blow that money and then go back and earn it again? What was your process like?
0: Well, no, my my money philosophy was I never had any and I wanted some. I grew up poor. <laughs> I knew that money didn't fall out of the sky when I first got to Wall Street. I used to hear the strangest things from guys about money and Wall Street and the markets. I mean, it was like money was easy and it was free and it was very easy to make money. I kept looking at these guys and said, boy, where I grew up, money was very rare and very hard to get. Uh, And it still is. You know, I learned at an early age that money did not grow on trees, although at times on Wall Street, especially in bull markets, everybody's convinced this is easy. Don't worry, we're all going to be rich. Well, by 1980, then
3: you officially retired or maybe unofficially retired, and you started to, to travel by motorcycle through China. What made you want to do that?
0: Well, my whole life, I told you I grew up in a place where my phone number was five. It was far away from anywhere, and I had this desire to see the world. I, I, I'm not sure why. Uh, except I did, and uh, one of my first desires was to go around the world on a motorcycle. Okay. Uh, strangely enough, motorcycles are great fun, great, great, great fun, uh, and I knew that, and uh, I knew that the best way to see the world, which I wanted to do, would be by motorcycle. It was not possible in 1980 because of the Soviet Union, Red China, lots of reasons. The world was pretty much closed off, but I set out trying to get permission to do it, uh, in my view, I wouldn't be really going around the world unless I drove across the Soviet Union, unless I drove across China. But after several attempts and several years, I finally got permission from both and lo and behold, I did it. Who knew?
3: (laughs) Who knew I would even survive?
0: (laughs) But I wanted to do, I knew that. I did say, I don't know if I meant it, but I did say, well, if I, but everybody said, you're probably gonna get killed. I did say, uh, but well, at least I'm going to die happy <laughs> die doing what I want to do. Fortunately, I didn't get killed. You know, I'm still alive, have my arms and legs. Uh-huh. But I, it was, I was very keen to see the world, I, uh-huh. very keen on adventure. Yeah. It was adventure as well as
3: seeing the world. I'm a motorcycle guy myself. And so I understand how you feel when if you're going to die, you're going to die happy when you're on a motorcycle. But uh, what was your bike of
0: choice back then? Oh, BMWs. I I always had mainly BMWs, uh, partly because I'm a hopeless mechanic and at least in theory in those days, the best engineered motorcycles and the most reliable motorcycles were were BMWs. And so, yeah, off I went.
3: I'm a a BMW fan, too. And so then fast forward 10 years later, then you decided to uh, motorcycle 100,000 miles across six continents. Um, that landed you in in, the Guinness Book of World Records. What inspired that?
0: Well, you know, I, I guess I can just go back to growing up in a small village in the backwoods of Alabama. I wanted to see the world, and I wanted adventure. I went around the world on a motorcycle once, and that was great. But that inspired me to see more. I realized there was a whole lot more that I had not seen yet so and i've done it on a motorcycle the first time so i decided to do it in the car the second time and off i went um i mean this all may sound a little nuts because i've spent five years driving around the world Mm -hmm. twice but it's fabulous fun and i survived so it made it it even better (laughs) since i survived
3: it sounds fun and adventurous to me so a lot of our listeners and myself included like i've lived abroad nine years And we have this new thing where, you know, you didn't have back in the day, we have uh, computers and internet where we can build business online and live in any country that has a decent internet and continue to build that and build our teams with remote employees. I'm curious, like, what do you think about the new movement of entrepreneurship, or I guess you can call location independent entrepreneurs, remote expats that are living, choosing to live in whatever country they, they feel like it, building uh, funnels and businesses online and making really decent income for themselves.
0: Well, there's no question that the Internet did not exist 50 years ago. And that's for sure. I, I promise you that. Uh, but uh, there were always entrepreneurs. I mean, not the same kind. But if you read back in history or literature, you see that there were always people starting businesses. Many times people going to different countries uh, in the old days the British were everywhere starting businesses the British Empire was everywhere but even you know later there were many Americans there was once a book called oh, was it the ugly Amer- mm-hmm. American or something about so many Americans in foreign countries starting businesses so this has happened obviously not to the extent it does now because it's much easier etc I can remember when I was going around the world on the motorcycle. Only way I could communicate and from many places was I would send my parents a postcard hoping they would find out I was still alive. There were no phones, there were no anythings. Uh, that's all very, very, very different now, uh, fortunately. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that as the world continues to develop communications, it will become even more. I hope it does, I hope the world becomes more open and more cosmopolitan and international for all of us. Yeah. We're a much better world. I think so too.
3: Um, hey, real quick to the listeners out there, I want to ask you something. What are you doing to optimize your day to day performance and productivity levels? You know, guys, we talk about this a lot on the podcast, and we're always trying to learn more and more about how each and every one of us can optimize our performance. The reason why I'm asking you is because today our show is sponsored by the good folks at Seize. Seize is a mental wellness company that aims to empower entrepreneurs and high performers with supplements to enhance their productivity and minimize their pain points. Flow is their flagship product, which is a ready-to-drink powder that comes in a 30-day stick pack that works as an energy and focus enhancer. Flow was created to improve your focus, increase your alertness, enhance your creativity so you can tackle the prime tasks of the day while staying in a creative flow state. On top of that, there are no energy crashes with their product flow, which means an improved mood and enthusiastic approach to business. These benefits are a supreme advantage for entrepreneurs and high performers to sustain their performance on a regular basis. Flow is an instant and sustained boost. It can be a replacement or enhancement for coffee, so you no longer require many cups per day to combat lethargy and the sluggish part of the day just to stay on top of things. Flow will give you what you need to get your brain cells firing so you can optimize your work results, hit your goals, have more time doing what you love, and spending time with loved ones so you can seize each and every day. When you sign up for Seize's VIP list, you get first access and can receive 50% off The pre-launch offer, you guys, that is half off during this pre-launch offer. Just head over to seize.life forward slash to business method. That's seize, S-I-I-Z, seize.life forward slash to business method to get your discount. We'll put all the links in the show notes, you guys. And now, let's hop back into the interview as i traveled over the years in these different countries and cities um you know i i look at that too like how would one how does this country and culture do business how do they what is their mindset around business what are the investment opportunities here when you were doing that trip and on your travels probably anytime you look at uh, what's your take what what do you look for in a country what are some of the maybe the the standards you look for to to realize if there's good investment opportunity that opportunity there or not
0: well chris because of the nature of who i am you know when i drive through a country i mean i don't just see something and say oh look at that isn't that nice isn't that interesting uh i'm always <laughs> on the alert in case there's an investment opportunity uh, if i see some dramatic change or something somewhere then I tr- i try to take advantage of it i remember crossing in one border in africa couldn't believe how different it was, so I went to find out if there was a stock exchange. There was, so I bought every stock on the stock exchange. Was such an exciting country from my experience <laughs> on the only seven stocks, by the way, only Good. seven listed. Though, lest you think I'm some kind of big hitter or something, but I could see the differences from the ground up. So I went and found the stock exchange and started investing. What was the returns on those those seven stocks? They were great, they were great. I mean, it was, there was, there was nobody invested in those countries in those days. Yeah, uh, and so and the country was a w- very well run country.
3: Yeah. Do you? I know you. You've been li- living in Singapore since two thousand and seven. Do you have any other plans to do um, long term travel, or are those days kind of done for
0: you? Well, uh, who knows? It partly depends on the world. I would like for my daughters and I to drive across China someday. Both of my daughters speak a, a perfect Mandarin. Uh, but we have to see. They're, they're teenage girls right now. <laughs> the last thing they're thinking about is driving across anywhere with their father. But no, I would love to see more of the world. Uh, I'd, I would, I'd love to go to Afghanistan right now. My wife says, not on my, she's not going to let me. <laughs> but I, you know. Probably wonderful, exciting things happening in many parts of the world right now. So I'd like to see them all. I still, when I turn on the internet or the newspaper, I want to go see what's happening. What really excites you about China so much? Because, you know,
3: even as a young man, you took a motorcycle across there. You'd like to take your daughters across there. Um, you moved to Singapore to be closer to China. I think you even said, um, you know, it's hard for Americans to understand that there's a shift taking place. And the center of that is in Asia and more p- precisely China. Um, do you have an affinity or is it just one of your favorite countries or you just think there's so much potential there that, that that's where the things are going to happen and you want to be close to it?
0: Well, Chris, it has nothing to do. It, it has to do with purely and simply what's happening in the world. Uh, if it were country X, I would be telling you this about country X. But China, I could see. 35, 36 years ago, that there were dramatic, exciting changes taking place in China. You know, when I first went to China, I was terrified. American propaganda all my life had said that the Chinese were evil, vicious, bloodthirsty, dangerous people. (laughs) I got there and I realized, oh boy, these guys are, these guys want to be rich. They all work from dawn to dusk. They save huge amounts of their income, et cetera. So I could see what was happening. I mean, if you Anybody who doubts that, just go back 35 years ago and you will see that China has had an unbelievable change as they've become more and more capitalist. They still call themselves communists, but they're among the best capitalists in the world. And I could see, I thought, dramatic changes taking place. And for what it's worth, China's the only country in world history that's had recurring periods of greatness. Rome was great once. Egypt was great once, Britain was great once, but China's been great on top three or four times in the last few thousand years. And it's, I don't know why they're the only country that's been able to do it, but they're on the rise again, whether we like it or not. We can say it's terrible. We can say they're evil, vicious, dangerous people. (laughs) Say it all day long, but there's dramatic change continuing to take place. Now, Chris, it doesn't mean there won't be problems. Uh I assure you. The United States became the most successful country in the 20th century. Right along the way we had a horrible civil war, we had many depressions with a with a D, we had very few human rights, Uh, you could buy and sell congressmen, or you can still buy and sell congressmen, but in the old days they were cheap. No, America became fantastic, but there were lots of problems along the way. China will have plenty of problems. Have you noticed any new
3: opportunities come up specifically in China since COVID?
0: Well, like everywhere else in the world, the economy and especially travel and entertainment collapsed, uh, I bought Chinese wine stocks, uh, because you know, people stopped, most people don't even know there are Chinese wine stocks. You have people stopped going to restaurants and bars, uh, et cetera. So I, I have found some opportunities yes uh, but that's true everywhere i will buy uh, any countries not any but many countries airlines and and airports because they all collapsed with uh, the virus yeah back uh, to what you said in the very beginning remember way g when there's a disaster there's usually also an opportunity
3: we might title this podcast just Wei g and just stick with that. <laughs> no, it's a really like I, I I loved when you mentioned that the last time we chatted because you know it kind of opens up uh, you know a new mindset and thought for a lot of people that hadn't thought about that before because the old standard thought is like oh crisis you know it's going to be hard, extremely hard for everybody but we experienced this you know when COVID hit especially us. Digital entrepreneurs, a lot of us prospered after the first few months of COVID, and then business absolutely skyrocketed for people that were set up online. So G has, you know, proved itself to be true once again.
0: Well, it's not just when a virus hits; lots of earthquakes, hurricane, anything can cause G. But I have learned, and I hope you have learned, and everyone learns that when there is a disaster. Yes, we all feel sorry for the people and we want to help in any way we can, but we might also invest. And by the way, uh, if you invest in a place where there's a disaster, you're helping the people. Yeah, you're there to yeah. make money, but the people need all the help they can get, including all the investment they can get. So Absolutely. it's not just some greedy capitalist. I mean, you're actually doing good for the people, for the area, for whatever is whatever's happening. God bless it, too. We're gonna open up to some questions
3: now from the audience. We have Ethan. Ethan, you wanna hop in? Go ahead, Ethan.
0: Ethan, where are you from? Where are you? Where are you calling from?
2: Hey guys. Hey Jim. I am in Chicago right now. All right. Go ahead. Okay. Um, well, first of all, thanks for doing this interview. I've I've watched a ton of your your content, and and I always get some gems out of them. Um, I've noticed a theme across a lot of your interviews, in that you tend to get interested in a particular asset class or a particular country when it's trading a significant percentage off of its high. And I've I've shared that kind of way of potentially smelling out good opportunities. My concern in today's environment is that the central bankers are committed to keeping asset prices high and they're committed to keeping interest rates at nothing. So my concern is, what if we don't see that big correction in equity valuations and prices because the things that they're being priced in are, are just being debased and they are going to continue to be debased?
0: Well, the central, the head of the Treasury, Department of Treasury in the U.S. says, don't worry, not going to be any economic problems again in the future. We, we've got it all figured out and we have it under control. Uh, I have heard things like that, even all my life from politicians and academics. Uh, history would indicate that they're totally wrong, and we will have uh, economic problems periodically. So I suspect we will. Now, there is always throughout history, whenever there's a problem, people look around for new theories. Mr. Marx had a theory 100, 150 years ago, uh, and everybody thought, well, gosh, Marxism sounds great. What a wonderful theory. And many people tried it for a long time. Well, we all now know that Marxism doesn't work. That didn't mean that a lot of people didn't fall for it. There's The new theory now called MMT, which means more money today. No, it means uh, modern monetary theory. First of all, it's not modern. <laughs> Second of all, maybe it's a theory, but it's certainly not not correct. But they say, don't worry, just print it, print it, print it, and we'll have good times forever. Maybe, I'm skeptical of that, Ethan. I've read enough history and had enough experience to know that no matter how many people say we can solve the problems, the world shows that they never have and probably never will. It's a little bit like, I mean, history shows very clear that war is absurd, that nobody wins a war, even the people who think they win the war. Doesn't mean that people don't have wars over and over and over again. So I'm very skeptical, but the Secretary of the Treasury has got two ivy League degrees from two famous Ivy League universities. She says, "Don't worry, no more problems i'm sub- I'm extremely skeptical in fact, I would say she's dead wrong, but who knows
2: <laughs> we're worried jim <laughs> um i guess I guess the follow up to that question i I agree in that especially m m t is I I think we'll end in ruins. I guess the question is, how do you think we can position ourselves to end up on the winning side of those ruins? Because I I I share your suspicion that you can't print money forever. So, well, normally when things like that happen,
0: uh, first of all, as prices go higher, which usually happens when you have a lot of money printing interest rates go higher so I certainly would not own bonds in fact if you know how to sell short you might learn how to sell short bonds Uh, but secondly it nearly always leads to inflation Uh, it it always has led to inflation despite Mrs. Yellen it's going to happen again and so you need to own the things that go up when there's inflation I mean prices go up the things that are going to go higher look out the window agriculture you're in Chicago agriculture prices are going to go higher metals commodities or energy s- silver I mean the price of silver is down over 50 percent from its all-time high often the price of silver and gold go through the roof when there's inflation so if you own the things that are going to go up in price because of inflation you will probably First of all, you'll survive, but second of all, you might make a lot of money. You know, in in the 1930s, we had a horrible, horrible economic time. Many people, not many, but there were people who came out of the 30s very rich and successful. So if you understand what's going on, chances are you'll make a lot of money and do well.
3: Yeah, I like that example of the Kennedy family. Joe Kennedy made the vast majority of, of his wealth uh, the two two or four years after the Great Depression. You know, but Jim, you were talking about you, you dove into commodities and gold and silver. And while we're on it, I'd love to know your take in cryptocurrency. You know, you see patterns with what's happening with crypto. And I'm very curious, gold and silver have kind of stayed at the same price range. Basically, you know, for quite a while, right now, they 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 went up a little bit, and they I think it, at the high point, silver was close to fifty dollars per ounce. And I'm just curious on your take. Do you think a lot of people that may have traditionally put their money in gold and silver are moving it over to cryptocurrency because they trust a different type of currency and they're they're willing to bet um, that this is going to be something that will be very successful in the future?
0: What do I think it? It's happening. I mean, turn on your computer. Yes, there are a lot of people putting their money into cryptocurrencies now, and many of them probably would have bought gold and silver once upon a time. Uh, But, Chris, all money is going to be on the computer eventually. I mean, in China, you can't take a taxi with money. You have to have your money on on the computer if you want to take. If you want to buy ice cream, you've got to have your way ahead of us. Uh, Every country is working on it. Uh, Many countries are ahead of the U.S., but the U.S. is working on it too. All money is gonna be on the computer eventually. There's no question about that. Governments love it. First of all, it's cheaper and more efficient. Uh, They don't have to print the stuff and transport it, et cetera. But from their point of view, which is what they love the most is they'll have total control. They will know everything we do. I mean, they'll call me up and say, you bought too much ice cream. (laughs) You know, stop eating so much, everything. They'll know everything we do, which I of course don't like, but governments love. So it's coming, Uh, the crypto guys say, uh, yes, we're gonna replace money. We're gonna, our money is gonna be the money. Now, maybe they're correct, but my view is that if that happens, uh, history also shows that governments do not like to lose their control. They do not like to lose their monopoly and and maybe when the u.s government i'll use the u.s when the u.s says okay this is money now this is it um i don't think that washington is going to say but if you want to use that money over there you can use that other money too right that's not the way those guys think i mean i wish we could that's not the way those bureaucrats and monopolists think they're probably going to say it's illegal, or they'll put some kind of controls or restrictions. Yeah. You know, in the thirties, uh, the Bank of England said, at one point, to people, "If you use any other money except our money, it's an act of treason." Oh really? But Chris, Chris mean, treason means they execute you. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, most people stop using other things for money. Um, I governments are pretty ruthless and pretty horrible people. Uh, (laughs) They like control and monopolies. So I would suspect that if the crypto gods are right and if it becomes real money, we will have government problems. Now, there's no question that, you know, crypto money is better for all of us and competing currencies are better for all of us, but they have the guns. And if they say you're not going to use it, most of us are not going to use it. Um, have you bought any crypto yet? No, no, no. never bought nor sold. No. Wish I wish I'd bought Bitcoin at two. Yes. <laughs> I mean, don't we all? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I yes. bought anything at one, and when it went to ten or twenty or a thousand, oh. yeah, you know, yeah. but I've
3: never bought nor sold. Uh, We've got James is up next. James, you want to take off your microphone and turn on your video? Okay. Hello, James. James is calling in from Thailand, Jim. Thank you. Jim, I'd like to ask you about your mindset. And how diligent are you about keeping focus? And I mean on a daily basis, but I also mean over months and years. And then I'm wondering if that's changed over your, your lifetime and if you would have any words of wisdom for your past self
0: well i said very early in this show that you know i stumbled on wall street and found that gosh shall will pay me to understand the world and know about the world because i always loved that even growing up in the backwoods of alabama so that is still correct i don't do it as passionately and deeply as i used to uh, I have other things going on now. I have two children, for instance, that I want to spend a lot of time with. I live in a different part of the world. Many things have changed, but that is still my passion. I mean, there are many people that know a lot about the NBA, the National Basketball Association. Well, I couldn't name anything about, about the NBA because uh, it doesn't interest me but there are many people who have passions that are just as crazy as mine. You may know a lot about football. I don't. I know very little either, whether you call it soccer or American football. But so I have changed, certainly. I live in a different country. I have children, et cetera, but I am still very keen on what's happening in the world. And that is my main passion more than anything else. Uh, Maybe someday, I will play the violin and be passionate about it, but it's unlikely. Great. So, thank James, you. I would suggest that you continue, figure out your passion and pursue it, uh, whatever it is, because you'll have a lot, it'll give you a lot more pleasure in life.
3: And do you have some thoughts about um, you know, previously in your life, those great adventures? Those might have been a time of unfocusing or seeing you know, accepting what comes in. And do you, do you still engage in that? And has that changed over time?
0: Well, I haven't driven a motorcycle around the world or even a car around the world in a long time. I would love to, uh, I still would love adventure. I said earlier to Chris, I wish I could go to Afghanistan now because I know it's certainly, you know, when you if you read back in history, revolutions are obviously exciting times. A lot of people get killed in revolutions, but there are certainly exciting times. I would love to go to Afghanistan now to see, because, as long as and I hope I wouldn't get killed. Also, a good chance you'll get killed when you uh, when you do something like that. Um, so, I am keen on what's happening in the world still, but also partly because I know it leads to investment opportunities. As as Chris and I were talking before, Wei Ji. And disaster and opportunity are the same thing. I'm not going to Afghanistan, but I wish I could. <laughs> Ronnie, you want to hop in, bud? Hey. Go ahead. Hello, Ronnie. Where hey, are buddy. you?
4: Hey, right here. What's going on? No, no.
0: But what country are you? Where are you sitting? Ah, I'm sitting in Vancouver, Canada. In where? Vancouver, Vancouver Canada. Canada. Ah, Vancouver. Hooray. Wonderful city.
3: Yeah. Thanks, buddy.
4: Appreciate it. A couple of questions. Uh, Something work-related. I saw your interview on uh, Bloomberg, Canada. I think that was done in May uh, this past year. And you were talking about, uh, I I guess, uh, the gist of the conversation was about commodities and uh, you you were talking about inflation and you were talking about central banks playing a key role in inflation as well. And I remember a very famous quote that he quoted from there, which was essentially, if you wanted to listen to central banks you know then you won't be in <laughs> then we won't be in this mess at the end of the day you know it's like a somebody reading a, a magic eight ball so i, want, I wanted to have more of the thoughts on that
0: well i have found in my experience that central banks usually don't know what they're doing but you have to know what central banks are doing because they're a big factor in any market. Uh, central banks are buying huge amounts of bonds, for instance, right now, which is madness. Uh, all of us, I mean, it's a good time in America. I know you're in, in Canada. It's a good time in America to be old because somebody's going to have to pay for all of this. Old people are not, young people are going to have huge burdens. Placed on them. My kids are going to have big problems later in their lives because of all this. Central banks don't know what they're doing often, but they do have huge amounts of money. And so they can get put off market influences. I have also learned, Ronnie, that usually if you go against the central bank, not immediately, because they have a lot of money, but eventually if you go against the central bank. You're going to be right because they nearly always get it wrong, whether it's the cur- currency or interest rates or whatever it happens to be. Adam,
1: we're going to have you up next. I got a two part question. The first one is less important than the second one. The first, no, actually, I got that backwards. I have a 13 year old daughter. So um, do I. I am curious. Uh, some of the most fun I have is talking about entrepreneurship and money with her with it out sounding like entrepreneurship and money. So I'm curious, um, how do you talk to your kids about how the world works about how money works and, and then how do you get them to listen?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot easier to get them to listen when they're two than it is when they're 13. Uh, I have a 13 year old daughter as well, a 13 year old daughter and an 18 year old daughter. Well, Adam, I realized when they were born, the first thing I did was get them piggy banks. And I wanted them to know that when you get money, you're supposed to go put it in the piggy bank. Many people, get little kids, when they get money, they go spend it. Well, I wanted my girls to know, no, 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 when you get money, the first thing you do is you put it in the bank. I wanted them to learn to save because once they'd saved it, then if they wanted to buy something or invest, they could. That seems to have worked, that they understand that much about money. Uh, I hope it will see. You can ask me in 20 years if I've taught them, don't spend it, save it, and invest it, and you will be better off. Uh, when my older daughter was 14, I told her she had to get a job um, because everybody should have a job. One of the things you learn about life, especially when you're a teenager, you better be on time. You better do what you're supposed to. You better do it right. Now, I thought she was gonna go down and get a job at McDonald's making $8 an hour. She's smarter than I am, uh, Adam. She went and got a job teaching Chinese, making $30 an hour, because her Chinese is so good. You know, I wish I were as smart as my daughter. Uh, but these are the things I am trying to teach them about the realities of life. Money is not free, it doesn't grow on trees, like I, Wall Street told me when I first went there. So these are some of the things that I'm trying to teach them. As far as entrepreneurship, it's a little early. I th- although my daughter did go and teach Chinese instead of working at uh, McDonald's. Uh, I, you, as I say, you can ask me in a few decades or a few years. Uh, so far, they have not shown great interest in being entrepreneurs, but we do. We, they do see success stories and they know about success stories because it's
1: in our lives. It's wonderful. Yeah. No, I, uh, I, my daughter does everything I tell her to do the first time I ask her all the time. Uh, n- never mind. That's a complete lie. No, but it's, <laughs> but it, I, I tell you what, I love entrepreneurship, but I think dad is one of my favorite, um, jobs. Um, so here's my second question. I am obsessed with the emerging space markets and the the space exploration and the concept of um, getting commodities from asteroids and energy from places off of the earth. I'm just curious if you've been exposed to any of that or have any thoughts about it.
0: Well, I know it's out there. I know it's happening. I mean, I can read like anybody else. Um, I doubt that it's gonna happen anytime soon, uh, that, that, that these changes, that kind of thing takes a very long time. I mean, it took hundreds of years for the Asian, the Westerners anyway, the Europeans to really get to the rest of the world. I mean, the Chinese had been traveling the world for many, many decades before the West did. But then the West eventually got to it, and the West eventually made a lot of money in other parts of the world. These things. You, you remember Henry Ford? Henry Ford's wife loved her electric car. She did not like his. Gasoline (laughs) cars. She thought they were horrible. Well, okay. Here it is. It's over 100 years later, Adam. And Henry Ford's wife is right. So these things, as wonderful as they may be, it takes a long time. We know there are huge amounts of valuable minerals at the bottom of the ocean. I I don't think it's going to happen soon. And we know that there are many minerals in astro... astro, Mm -hmm whatever you asteroids, whatever you call them. Uh, I don't think I anyway, am going to make a lot of money in getting copper from whatever's flying around in space. But somebody is someday, maybe your daughter, maybe my daughter.
1: Fantastic. So here's my takeaway. Ask my wife what she thinks about space travel, and then do that. Um, bet, <laughs> bet on the Henry Ford model. Jim, thanks so much. <laughs> All right. Up next, may, we,
0: may, Chris, you should maybe you should get Henry Ford's wife to be on your show.
3: <laughs> we'll see if we can find her. <laughs> uh, Jim, up next, we have Greg. Greg, you want to hop in, my friend? Yeah, I think you got me. Got you, buddy.
5: Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm I'm Greg Boodid. Uh, it's a great. It's an honor to meet you, Jim. Um, I'm calling you from Thailand, just up the way, just up the way you, from you're yourself.
0: You're calling from Thailand, also?
5: Yeah, yeah. Oddly enough, yeah. Me and James we're connected on the side. He's just up the road in chiang mai and i'm here in bangkok
0: okay hooray <laughs> hooray
5: so i'm a i'm a jewelry manufacturer i have a company here in bangkok where we make jewelry for brands and i have a brand in the u.s i'm I was, i'm interested even going off of what adam was just talking about there my god if we find a giant golden asteroid my business is going. i'm going to be just wiping out margins like crazy what are your thoughts jim on the next six seven eight months or or uh, whatever buffer you think is uh, appropriate with regard to gold prices um I, i'd really like to hear your opinion on that
0: well i own silver i own gold I, i've owned it for many years um never sold any silver or gold i mean i've given some away to my children and other people uh, i am not buying either at the moment but but greg my market timing is usually not very good uh i do plan To buy a lot more gold and a lot more silver before this is before this is over because both will go much higher throughout history when you've had people lose confidence in governments or money they they always turn to gold and silver and and greg i'm an old peasant i'm like all the other peasants we know when things go wrong we better have some gold in the closet we better have some silver under the bed so i will buy more silver i'll buy more gold before this is over i'm not buying now i have no i if and when there's big panic in both of those markets either of those markets i will buy more at the moment i would buy more silver than gold silver is down 50 or 60 percent from its all-time high gold is down 10 percent. but who knows it will depend on prices if and when but don't. Even well, uh, you in imagine. the jewelry business, so you do sell your gold and silver, but keep some under the bed.
5: Oh, a- a- absolutely. That's that's uh, that's a, a different conversation. That it's a fun little byproduct in manufacturing jewelry is your your losses kind of have great value. But the um, other question I would have would be: Are you recommending either like the paper gold on by purchasing on paper gold, or are you? Are you consider are you more for yourself now more interested in the physical raw material
0: well greg it depends on what you, you your expertise if you know a mm-hmm. lot about gold and silver i mean futures in the futures markets, you'll make staggering amounts of money if you get it right you can also lose staggering amounts of money before lunch if you get it wrong in the futures markets um, but that's a wonderful way if you know what you're doing if you know a company that's going to find gold in Berlin. Greg, you should buy all the stock you can in that company. And then you should send me an email and I'll buy (laughs) stock in that company, too. You know, but remember that the remember uh, Mark Twain, Mark Twain was a great American author, and he once said the definition of a gold mine is a hole in the ground with a liar standing at the top he obviously lost a lot of money in a gold mine investment in his day and there are hundreds of silver mines and gold mines but if you know the right one for goodness sakes buy all you can because you're going to make a fortune you get enormous leverage that way uh, I have it in the in the closet under you know because I want to have some in case down the road I I do have some ETFs that invest in metals. There are various and sundry ways that one can invest in gold and silver, or one can do like you become a jewelry, a jewelry person.
5: Mm. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: My pleasure. See you in Bangkok. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg.
3: Uh, I think Ethan has another question for Jim. Ethan, you want to hop in?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, I got one more for you, Jim. Um, I've noticed that that you, you seem to have done really well picking equities within specific countries that are primed for a long run of growth and I was just wondering when you're vetting a specific country you know like you've said that Russia is a very interesting country over the next few years um, what kind of what kind of macroeconomic indicators are you using when you are vetting at the country level before you even start looking at the broader market, you know? Are you looking at GDP growth, national debts? How do you kind of, how do you kind of break down the potential of a country?
0: Well, I guess it starts with a change. Uh, Russia, for instance, I was very negative on Russia for decades. Um, But then I thought I saw big changes taking place in the mentality in the Kremlin Uh, Instead of killing people, capitalists, they they wanted to be capitalists themselves. And Russia doesn't have huge debt like America or other places and they're huge natural resources in Russia. So I thought when I saw that change in in the government, the mentality, then I started looking for, okay, now what do I do? Uh, What companies, what stocks, what bonds, currency? I looked to see what, is, what are the options, uh, and you will probably find lots and lots of things. I told you about before when I found that. Well, it was the African country I mentioned before was Botswana. I crossed the border and drove to the capital, and I could see, Hugh, my goodness, what is this country? It was very, very different from all the other African countries I'd driven through. So I went to find out it was a stock exchange. And so I started finding out what's going on in the country. And how could I invest uh, in the country? And in that case, it was with stocks. Uh, there were no there was no bond market, there was no currency market. So it depends on what is going on in the country. Um, and I'll give you for instance, I mean, Pakistan, I'm not investing in Pakistan, but Pakistan is a gigantic producer of cotton. Well, if I got interested in cotton, if I thought that cotton was about to enter a big bull market, I would probably, one of the things I would think about would be Pakistan, because I know they're going to do extremely well if and when there's a big bull market in cotton. And then I would have to find, okay, what stocks on the Pakistan stock exchange will be the best way to invest. Uh, it, it depends on what's happening in the world is the first place I start, and if I see change, then I have to figure out, okay, what do I do next? I mean, if there's a stock market in Afghanistan, and I don't think there is, but I've, I told my assistant to find out. If there's an, a, a stock market in Afghanistan, I would—I know it's low. <laughs> you know what's been happening; it'd be gigantic disaster uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and back to wage-e, if there's, if there's a stock market, I will start looking to see what, if anything, I should buy, because I know that whenever, not whenever, but mainly, usually when a country goes through a catastrophe, if you can invest there, you're probably going to be okay in a few years. It may not be fine at first, but nearly always, when a country goes through a disaster or catastrophe and collapses it usually comes out a few years later, much better off. That was not true of North Korea, by the way. That was not true, not true of Cuba, but so you have to do more than just buy blind, but it could happen.
3: Uh, another one from Ronnie. Ronnie, you want to hop in? Hey again. Yeah. So, Hello. quick question.
4: Hello. Hey, hey, everybody. Uh, quick question to you. Were you ever involved in long-term capital management? You remember that fund back in the nineties, the late nineties. No, no, 90s. no,
0: I remember. You know, I was short the market when that happened. I, I didn't know North you know, Long Term Capital Manager was going to collapse, but I was short the market going into all of that. But no, no. Yeah, I, that was when the. I, I never had anything to. You know, I I knew that they was a little absurd. One reason I was short market, You know, they had Nobel Prize winners who didn't have. Yeah, the flu have but it was a good. They didn't have a clue what they were doing, so they went bankrupt.
4: <laughs> yeah, it was a trillion dollar fund gone down the drain, I remember.
1: Yeah,
0: and they um, had two, no- two, Bel- two Nobel Prize winners in economics. I can yeah, tell you other uh, reasons uh, that the Nobel Prize in economics is a sham, but that's that's one example. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you still use the Merton-Scholes uh A formula still in insurance, but it's really good for insurance or long-term bond markets. But I think that's the only practical use for the Merton schools formula at the end of the day.
0: Uh, Well, the the long-term bond market today is a different conversation entirely. I mean, bonds have never been this expensive in the history of the world. We're definitely in a bond market uh, bubble, all over, nearly all over the world. Uh, So long-term bonds in 2021 are entirely different conversation than they were in the late '90s.
4: And uh, you know, we we've heard about your success, but I'm sure at some point of time you've made some bad investments, and you know, something's not gone the way you you wanted it to go. So, what lessons would he have for uh, you know aspiring investors or aspiring uh, you know uh, what lessons would he have to give to somebody who's just starting out from the failures that you've had in the past? Like, what would it be?
0: Funny, I have made many, many mistakes. Are you kidding me? Many, you want to hear about my first wife? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! What a mistake! <laughs> what a mistake that was! You know? <laughs> and and I, I, actually, I'll use that as an example because you asked what were you. I ran into her recently by accident, and I'm so glad. So glad I'm not married to her anymore. What a terrible experience! I've ever had. So one of the, the best thing about mistakes is you must learn from your mistakes. Um, I, I tell students all the time: listen, it's okay to to lose a lot of money if you learn from it, but do it when you're 25, not when you're 65. So if and I made lots of mistakes, not just my first wife, but fortunately, if you learn from them and you survive then uh, you probably will be okay. I, I lost a lot of money early in my career. And I, it taught me. And the reason I did was because I didn't understand market timing. I, I didn't understand that a lot of people in the markets do not know what they're doing. And so they may buy something and it'll go up a lot, even though it's wrong. I was short some stocks that that skyrocketed because the public kept buying them. They eventually went bankrupt. But I lost everything first, Ronnie, because I didn't understand that in the markets, I'm not the only guy. And there were a lot of people who didn't know that these things were gonna go bankrupt. And so they bought them, bought them, bought them. So I made many mistakes. But fortunately, if you learn from them, you'll be better off. I'm not saying, Ronnie, go out and make a lot of mistakes and lose a lot of money, but just watch your mistakes, okay? Try to learn.
4: <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Thanks for the life lesson.
3: Jim, I uh, got a question for you. If you were a young man, uh, knowing what you know now from all your experience, and you just left Oxford, would you still go the investment banking routes, or you think would you do something else?
0: Chris, I think I am a young man. Okay, my <laughs> fault. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on here? Say 25 no. again. Yeah. No, of course I would go into the investment business. It's what I love. Um, I would not be... I, thank goodness I didn't go to medical school or law school or any of those things, looking back on it. i happened by chance to find what I love, what my passion was. So, and if you can do that uh, in life... You know, those are the people who are most successful, Chris, because they they do what they love. They wake up every day and they start having fun. They don't go to work. They just start having fun. Uh, And by the way, even even if they're not successful, they don't care because they're happy. So what difference does it make? You know, if you find what you love and you pursue it, you're going to have a good time in life. So, yes, I would certainly go back to the investment world no matter what period it is in my life. If you couldn't go
3: back into investment banking, is there something else you think you might choose? Well,
0: I wasn't so much investment banking. It was, it, it was, uh, uh, fund management. It was okay. investment management more than investment banking. Uh, well, I mean, i love adventure. I love travel. So maybe I would figure out a way to get into the travel industry. Um, uh, something like that, something that would do help me see the world and get involved with the world. Uh, that would, I'll try to find some way to do something like that.
3: Yeah. Um, Jim, who do you think we should keep our eyes on? You know, there's the big moguls out there, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos. Um, any Anybody that maybe is up and coming or not on the radio so much that you think we should keep our eyes on for what they're doing for the world and for investments and entrepreneurship?
0: Well, Chris Reynolds. You should probably. <laughs> watch your,
3: you should probably. <laughs> This is, I flattered you,
0: so you're trying to flatter me now, Jim. I mean, <laughs> uh, no, no. There are plenty of, I watch everybody, everything. Um, back to some of our earlier conversations, uh, history shows that the, often people who are flying high often make mistakes. So be prepared for that. Uh, I told you that Henry Ford's wife, better on electric cars, <laughs> you know. She was in the right industry and she had the right company, just had the wrong technology a right. uh, hundred odd years ago. So it's not as simple as it looks. Uh, yeah, I, I don't sit around paying too much attention to anybody uh, except myself. Uh, I make enough mistakes for myself without having to worry about others. But no, I'm, I'm aware of what's going on in the world and I do try to pay attention, especially when I look for shorts. I don't have any shorts right now, but when I look for shorts, I look for high flyers.
3: Greg's got another question. Come on in, Greg.
0: Hey, uh,
5: again, sorry, I just wanted to bring this up. I, considering that um, travel and tourism has just been pummeled, and they're just gonna, they, the travel and tourism industry has just been hit so hard that as we come out of COVID, looking at what happened in the United States, when the United States for a moment there had, bit of control of COVID, the market just shot straight up, the travel shot straight up, the planes were filled again. Over here on the other side of the world where we are, I wonder if now is a good time to look at some mergers or some acquisitions of some small businesses that are more focused on travel and tourism, because they're in the dip. A lot of folks are in the in the in an oppor- are in a position where they may be selling good opportunities of existing businesses. I, I um, I wonder, if A, have you ever had that opportunity or B, uh, made that type of mistake and bought that kind of dip and it didn't work out or what are your thoughts on well, that?
0: Well, I, I said before, there is a disaster in travel, tourism, all of the above. And so I bought, have bought and am looking for more sh- shares to buy because, Craig, I know that we're not going to take the boat to London. I know we're going to fly to London again someday. And when we get to London, we're not going to sleep in the park. We're going to sleep in a hotel somewhere. So I have been looking for and am looking for opportunities in travel, tourism, transportation, whatever. I mentioned to Chris before, I bought Chinese wine stocks because people stopped going out. Most people don't know there are Chinese wine stocks, but forget that. People didn't go to the restaurants. They didn't go to the bars. So mm-hmm. whenever there's something, a disaster, I look for opportunities. And you mentioned a perfect example with travel, tourism, transportation, et cetera.
5: Yeah, I'm, tr- yeah. I'm truly considering buying a travel company. It's an existing brand in Patia or Koh Samui up in Chiang Mai. And uh, that's already got the customer base website, the business. And it, I just think it might be a good opportunity to spend that money.
0: Well, I like Chiang Mai. I don't know the company. I don't know the people and don't don't tell me, but no, it may be a great opportunity.
5: Thanks for your experience, Jim, This is great.
3: Um Jim, what's a what's a question you think we should be asking you that no one
0: ever asked you? I don't know. I I an important question in two thousand and twenty-one is where should we be living in 2031? Where should we be living in 2041? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm obviously worried about what's happening in the world. What's happening in Afghanistan does not argue well right. for certain parts of the world. And if it does not argue well for the United States, I'm an American citizen, taxpayer, voter, my children are, but America spent trillions with a T I mean, trillions. America's already the largest debtor nation in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. And it's getting worse every day and they keep making these mistakes. Vietnam, Iraq, now Afghanistan. I don't know. Uh, I brought my children to Asia so that they would know Asia for their lifetimes and so that they would speak Chinese. But now what? what where are they, where should they live? when they're 41, uh, we should all be thinking about that. All of us who are Americans, all of our ancestors left somewhere and went to America. And that was a great wise, smart decision. So maybe we should too be thinking about what our ancestors did. Should we be in America? Should we be in Germany? I'm not just using, I shouldn't just use America. Everybody should be thinking about, okay, there are gigantic pl- changes taking the place in the world. Where should we be in 10 years? Where should we be in 20 years? Now, maybe you don't want to think about it. Maybe you're going to just say, oh, my country's the best, blah, blah, blah. I'm not ever going to even think about leaving, which is fine. That's your decision if that's what you want. Would you ask me what we should be asking and thinking about? As I look at the world in two thousand twenty one I wonder where everybody should be in two thousand thirty one two thousand forty one because I know it's gonna the world's gonna be very very different
3: any any thoughts top of mind countries that look that you're bullish on for you know two thousand twenty thirty one um any European countries we know you like Singapore but uh anything in in the central parts of the world?
0: Well, I came to Singapore in 2007 for very reasons, mainly so that my kids would learn a foreign language. Um, Mm -hmm. Would that be true today? I don't know. Everybody has to make that decision for themselves. I see very interesting things happening in many parts of the world. Um, I I know that, that Canada, for instance, there are many people moving to Canada now Uh, whether they're right or not, I have no clue. Uh, Canada has a lot of things going for it. Uh, Disasters, there are disasters in the world. I would expect the Korean Peninsula to open up, the 38th parallel to open not too long from now. If and when that happens, the Korean Peninsula is going to be an exciting place to be for a few years, not forever, but maybe 10 or 20 years uh, as I look around the world. See, there's a disaster in Venezuela. Uh, I'm not moving to Venezuela, but there, oh my gosh, it's a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. And Venezuela throughout history has been normally a successful, prosperous country. Uh, Look at the disasters around the world. That's where I would start if I were looking at the world, uh, because normally those disasters turn out to be great if you have the staying power. Yeah, I'm not suggesting, Chris, that you move to Venezuela. I went to Venezuela not long ago. Uh, I did not invest because there are sanctions against Americans investing there. But maybe you're not American. Maybe you can see opportunities.
3: Wei G, right? Venezuela.
0: Yeah, Wei G. Back way to Wei got one. I think in Korean it's pronounced. In Japanese, I think it's pronounced Kiki. I forget how it's pronounced in Korean, but it's exactly the same uh, character.
3: Weiji kiki. One more question, Jim, we'll, we'll wrap up. I want to ask you, what do you want your legacy to be?
0: Oh, uh, Chris, I, I was mainly my children is my answer to your question. I was very much against children my whole life. I never wanted to have children. I thought children were a terrible waste of time, money, energy. I felt so sorry for my friends who had children. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, I was wrong. Uh, These children are fabulous. If there's anybody watching this who hasn't had children, I would urge them to think about it because it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun
3: for me. Good, good. Well, uh, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, Jim. It's been such an honor and privilege. I love following you. I love learning more about how your mindset is around entrepreneurship and investing. And I think everybody that came on and listened to the show really appreciate that as well. well. So thank you so much, Jim. We appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Chris. And remember, way G. G, remember Kiki, G-
3: okay. wait, G, Kiki, <laughs> listeners, good. listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you all for coming in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us. And once again, we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community. If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today, and we'll see you on the next episode.